0: Welcome to the Learning and Performance Podcast, the show where we explore ideas, strategies, and tools for enhancing human learning and performance. I'm your host, Patrick Healy. Learning and performance are inextricably connected. If we can't learn, we can't grow. If we can't grow, we end up hitting plateaus. We repeat the same mistakes, stagnate, and fail to reach our potential. When we improve our ability to learn, we enhance our ability to perform at a higher level. Today, High performance in more and more domains increasingly depends on rapid learning. Whether you're a student, a researcher, a professional, an athlete, this show discusses research and practices that you can use to learn faster and perform better. Welcome, welcome to the very first episode of the Learning and Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Healy. I wanted to introduce myself for the very first episode. So who am I? I am a learning designer, so I help companies, universities, organizations, teams design and develop learning experiences to enhance learning and performance. In the past, I've worked for organizations like the International Monetary Fund, Harvard Business School, and Wayfair designing learning experiences for students online and face-to-face. My number one passion is learning and performance. I'm obsessed with helping people develop knowledge, skills, and habits of mind to enhance their performance, accomplish their goals, and advance their careers. I love to learn, and I'm a nerd when it comes to all things psychology, neuroscience, education, all that good stuff. I'm currently pursuing my EDD at Indiana University, In instructional systems technology and I am so excited to chat with some of those interesting people in the world about the science of learning and performance and today I am so so excited we're speaking with Dr. Althea Kaminsky I couldn't think of a better person to kick off the podcast Dr. Kaminsky is a psychologist studying the application of cognitive psychology to education she received her PhD from Purdue University and her BS in psychology and her BA in linguistics from Indiana University, where I am going currently for my EDD. Go Hoosiers! Dr. Kaminsky was formerly the chair of the psychology department and director of the behavioral neuroscience program at St. Bonaventure University in New York. She's an advocate for learning science communication and evidence-based practice in teaching and learning. She also co-founded the Center for Attention, Learning, and Memory at St. Bonaventure to conduct research on learning and provide professional development based on the principles from the science of learning. Most recently, Dr. Kaminsky moved back to Indiana to become the Senior Director of Student Academic Support and Achievement at Indiana University School of Medicine. She is also a member of the Learning Scientists, one of a handful of psychologists, and educators who are providing science communication on the science of learning to the general public. They have one of my favorite websites on the science of learning. It's a great place for teachers, students, other educators, just general humans to go to learn more about how we learn specifically academically. They talk about a lot of great practices, many of which we discussed in this episode. I wanted to chat with Dr. Kaminsky today because I think her and the learning scientists are doing something really, really valuable and that is distilling what we know about the science of learning into simple, accessible, digestible content for educators and students. And I think they do a really good job of that. I personally have benefited from a lot of their content and I hope you will too. So with that, I bring you Dr. Althea Kaminsky. I am here with Dr. Althea Kaminsky. Dr. Kaminsky, thanks for joining the Learning and Performance Podcast. Thanks for having me. Great. So I'll already have introduced you uh, a little bit before before our conversation today. But for the listeners, can you just give a, a little bit of a sense in your own words of who, who are you and and what do you do?
1: Sure. Um, so I am a cognitive psychologist by training, um, and for many years I was a psychology professor at. Um, and university. I also um, am a member of the Learning Scientists, um, which uh, is an international team of cognitive psychologists, um, and we focus on science communication and sort of um, telling people about the science of learning for for anyone who would find that useful. So our primary audiences, um, students and educators.
0: That's great. Yeah, I'm a big, big fan of the of Learning Scientists. So I was I was so excited to to get one on my on my show today. Um, I want to just before we dive into that, I wanted to start a little bit uh, with a few questions that I, I try to ask all the guests. This is the Learning and Performance podcast. Um, so in your in your context, as a learning scientist and a professor, how do you how do you define performance?
1: Um, I would say performance is just your ability to achieve whatever goal it is you're trying to achieve. And um. So part of being a psychology professor is that I taught introduction to psychology for many, many years. Um, and so when I think of performance, I think of the performance arousal curve, um, <laughs> right? Uh, and and I see that pop up in terms of performance, in terms of physical performance, but also cognitive and mental performance. And sort of, I, I always talk about that with my students in the context of um, getting them in the right sort of ready state for learning. So that yeah. they're at peak performance in the middle of the arousal curve.
0: Yeah, uh, so I'm aware of the uh, the arousal curve. Can, for the listeners, can you just, what is that? What, can you just describe that a little bit more?
1: Sure, so uh, the performance arousal curve plots out this relationship bepo- between performance and arousal. And it's a upside down U-shape function. So it starts off at very low arousal. You have very low performance. You can think of this as like, well, you're asleep. There's nothing happening yeah you're bored Um, you're asleep
0: yeah yeah it's, it's
1: difficult to perform well and then kind of as you warm up as you become more sort of awake and alert right and your ability to focus increases so does your performance and so the two were going up and up hand in hand until you reach sort of the peak of that and at that point any more autonomic arousal um, is sort of becomes overwhelming. Now we've gone from being awake, alert and focused to maybe being overwhelmed or stressed or anxious, right? And there's mm. too much happening. And then we start to see performance decrease as arousal goes up. So it's mm. sort of like a um, Goldilocks and the Three Bears situation, right? right? Where you need to have just the right amount, right? The yeah. medium amount of stuff happening and going on for you to perform at your best.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a sweet spot almost between mm-hmm. like on the one end sleep or, <laughs> or boredom. And then on the other end, just complete stress and, and overwhelm. Right. My next question is how do you define learning?
1: Um, so learning for me is intimately linked with memory. Cause that's my main area of focus and study. So I would say learning is your ability to acquire information in a way that is useful and relevant for you.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I like that very succinct. And how do you see the two relating uh, learning and performance?
1: Uh, So I usually talk about learning as the performance, right? Because Mm -hmm. I'm studying how people learn and how to best learn things over the long term. Um, And so I'm used to thinking about learning or or memory, right? Your ability to actually use the information that you've acquired Mm -hmm. as the performance that we are measuring.
0: Right. So in, in the academic context, uh, or in in the lab, in the case of a, of a cognitive psychologist, mm-hmm. the the learning is whatever task that you're you're giving people or whatever exactly. students are doing. That is the that is for the performance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like to ask that because it's not oh, that's not always the case. But I know for for in purely kind of academic settings, learning and performance are can can be synonymous. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. For yeah. Me, the two are the same.
0: Yeah. So you uh, you mentioned you were a member of the learning scientists. I'm, I'm a big, big, big fan. And what is a learning scientist?
1: Um, so like I said, this is our our group, an international team of us. Um, so we are all cognitive psychologists. We actually all have very similar background in, in training. Um, and our interest is really in the science of learning. Um, and communicating the science of learning, which tends to come from cognitive psychology, specifically research on human memory, but not Mm -hmm. exclusively. That's just what we were all trained in, so that's what we primarily draw from. Um, And our focus is really on science communication. So we all teach and do research on our own, but our sort of primary focus is on translating what we know from what we would call basic research on human memory. to make it more accessible and applicable for people um, who maybe don't have the same background or training that we do.
0: Yeah, I can imagine some of your audience, like like professors and and teachers who are just so busy in the in their daily lives, like they don't have time to, you know, go to the cognitive psychology journals to figure <laughs> for for uh, you know the latest on on how people learn.
1: Exactly, I barely have time to keep up with all the comments. Right, right, right. I don't know. I, it's unreasonable to expect that other people would be able to do this too.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, what are some of the, uh, I guess, common mistakes or, or or myths or misconceptions that teachers or, or students have around learning? Like, what are what are some of the top ones? Um,
1: there, there, there are there are, there are a lot of top ones. I think in general. Um, because people aren't as aware of the science of learning it does sort of feel like a very kind of like almost mystical process to some people and it can be mm-hmm. a very sort of personal struggle that people have gone through where they felt really frustrated that they're not learning as quickly or as well as they would like and so they're, they'll kind of like grasp on to anything that seems to like work for them and so there's I run across when I'm working with students a lot of like anecdotal things that just right someone feels that this worked for them and so they swear by pink highlighters right whereas mm. we know from research that like the color of the highlighter doesn't matter right it's mm. and actually highlighting can lead to like overconfidence in mm. what you're studying there are ways to use highlighting to be really really effective but that's usually not what students are doing. Um, some of the most persistent myths are myths related to like learning styles, the idea that some people learn better through specific modalities, meaning that um, maybe you learn better as like a visual person or an auditory person, um, but there's just not really any good evidence for that when we look at it in terms of experimental evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead, what actually does seem to work well is when we combine modalities, when if you learn mm-hmm. things both visually and auditorially, just because it gives you multiple types of input and it sort of like builds on each other in a way that is useful and not, um, not counterproductive. So learning styles is a really big myth. It is incredibly pervasive, um, and is founded on zero, um, actual empirical evidence. Um, another, there's... I also encounter a lot of other, to me, what seems like very strange learning myths about like right brain, left brain. Hmm. Um, You think with your whole brain, unless you maybe have damage or atrophy in your corpus callosum, the connective tissue between the two hemispheres of your brain. But outside of that, both parts of your brain work together. Um, But typically people will think of that as being, Maybe that they are more creative and good with words and they see that as related as opposed to maybe being more logical and mathematical. um, When in reality, actually, the processes that we use to understand like math and language are very similar. They're both symbolic systems. And Mm. um, typically, if you see delays in language development, you also see delays in mathematical ability. So that doesn't really hold up to much scrutiny. So I always tell my students, you think with your whole brain. Um, yeah. I, or, you know, I'll usually joke with them. I don't know about you, maybe not all of you, but most people, right. We're thinking with their whole brain that, and the like 10% of your brain is another big neuro myth.
0: I believe that one was actually like a marketing, uh, th- thing that originally came about to, to get people to buy, uh, like more, more of something. I, I forget it, the, the origins. Probably story. caffeine, yeah.
1: most drugs on the market <laughs> to improve focus are like the number one ingredient in that is caffeine. Um, mm. But actually, so that one is interesting because there is a little bit of truth in that, in that, like, all of your neurons cannot fire at the same time. Mm. That would maybe be what we think of as a seizure, right? Right, right. right. We have things like all firing at once. Like, it's really not great. Um, So instead, at any given moment in time, right, any split second time, it is about 10% of your neurons that are like, like, we had like heat map, it's about 10% that are actually firing but the way that our brains communicate, the way that neurons communicate is sort of firing. It's like, it, you can think of it maybe as um, like Morse code, right, where you have mm. dots and beeps, and it's not any singular dot or beep, whatever the, that conveys a message. It's the series of those and the sequences of those over time. Same thing with neuronal firing. So if like everything was firing all at once, it'd be like if you mashed up your hands down on the keyboard, right, and played all the keys at once. Yeah. And like, you can't play a melody that way, right? right you need right. spacing and timing to play a melody. That's what happens in your brain. So yes, maybe only 10% are firing at a time, but they all fire over, hopefully, uh, right? Over a period of time, right? And it's a sequence of firing that conveys messages. So,
0: yeah, that's so, yeah. that's so, go ahead.
1: I was gonna say, so that one maybe has like, it's a t- small kernel of truth or basis, but that's not the way that people tend to interpret that or think about it.
0: Yeah, those are some those are some good ones. Yeah, learning styles, uh, right brain, right brain, left brain. Um, They're so I guess they sound good in in theory. And, and um, it's like a grain and I guess a grain of truth, like with learning styles. I think people have learning preferences for sure. sure. Um, But yeah, just in terms of uh, as like, like biological human (laughs) creatures, it wouldn't make too much sense for us to not be able to, like, we're very, we're very adaptive. And um, we we might like certain things, but at the end of the day, we can make do with, with quite a lot.
1: Right. And I always think about it in terms of like, I mean, the learning, whatever systems we have in place in our brain, and um, we have the same basic learning system in place, we all learn pretty much in the same way. But we certainly have a lot of individual differences in terms Mm -hmm. of our preferences, our experiences, and it may be that you have a preference uh, because based on your past experiences, you found this to be easier or you've, if it's felt easier. Um, although actually when we look at things that improve learning, you do need a little bit of difficulty. So actually, if that even if that were to be the case that it was easier for you to learn things visually, then the recommendation would be to do things um, auditorily because the visual thing would be too easy for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, yes, we, while we certainly have differences and preferences, we all do tend to learn in the same way. In the same way, I, I always liken it to, like, the digestive system. Like, we, mm. we still need the, ba- we all need the same basic nutrients. We might have preferences. We might have certain things where we might have certain intolerances, right? That, like, everyone's got their own, um right, individual differences there. But in general, you need protein to get through the day, you need, like right. we all kind of need the same stuff and it's the same thing with learning.
0: Yeah, yeah. On the uh, learning scientist site, one thing that you all have that that I love are six evidence-based practices, just a high leverage ones um, for, for better learning. Could you maybe do a brief rundown of, of the six and, uh, we can get into get into uh, a, f- a few of them or, or all of them. Yeah. Sure.
1: So those are pulled um, from, a f- there were a few different big meta-analyses and studies that kind of identified those as, like you said, the biggest bang for your buck, the most high impact ones. So this is not an exclusive or exhaustive list of different learning strategies. These are just the ones that we have the most and best evidence for as being really highly effective. So the the biggest one that we always talk about is retrieval practice retrieval practice is simply recalling or bringing to mind information. Um yeah. so that's that's a really plain and simple definition. I think it's easier to define that based on what it's not. Um so if you are like so usually if you like let's say practicing with flashcards, right? And you look on one side of it and you try to recall the word that's on the other side, you have to actually recall that word. If you have to flip the flashcard over and read it and then you go, "Oh, I knew that." No, you didn't that's no. cheating. <laughs> right. You did not actually retrieve that you had to right. read it. And that's a different kind of things happening. Right. Um, so we can talk about it in studying that retrieval practice also happens like right now you and I are having a conversation, we're having to bring things to mind, right. And that is retrieval practice as well. So anytime you have to bring information to mind, you are retrieving it from your memory. Um, and that's actually a, an active reconstructive process. And the process of bringing that information to mind is what's going to give you practice bringing that information to mind, which is going to make it easier to recall later in the long term. So retrieval yeah. practice is like the biggest one. That one's the most highly effective one.
0: Yeah, with that's probably the one that I've used the most to improve my, my own learning. And I think students, the students that I work with, uh, it's the one that they can get value from very, very, very quickly. I mean, if you think about it from like a student standpoint, they're taking a test let's say a a closed book test what they're having to do is is to retrieve right Mm -hmm. so (laughs) it it would make sense to during during your studying to kind of you know practice for the game in in a way yeah that's
1: right it it, practice makes perfect right it's really yeah um, it's, again, it's it's incredibly powerful. It's also like the most boring recommendation because it's this is where we have to break the hard news that like there's not some silver bullet where mm-hmm. just do this one thing, you're magically gonna remember it. It's, well, if you consistently practice over time, you'll get better, right? Just like right. any skill or ability that you have. Um, and the other sort of advice that I always give students there is to practice in the way you expect to be tested, right? Because mm-hmm. that's gonna make a difference. If you have, um, let's say an, an essay, tests that you're studying for, practicing multiple choice questions is not going to be the way to go, right? Like you're not going to be using this information in the same way. And so it's not going to be as easy for you. I mean, it could be better than nothing, but you really should be practicing the way you expect to be tested there.
0: Yeah. If you're going to take the SAT or you're going to take some high stakes science test, <laughs> uh, try to try to practice in the format that the test is going to be in.
1: Yes, Absolutely. Um, the next one, the next big one is spaced practice. Um, so spaced practice is, uh, spaced learning is the finding that when we space out our practice over time, that is more effective for long-term learning than if we were to mass that practice together. Um, so here it's not about the total time that you're spending. It's about how much you've spread that out. So let's say you're going to study for three hours for some exam, right. Or for something coming up. You could study for three hours, maybe the night before, or you could study for an hour each night the three days leading up to it. So it's the same total amount of time. You're still studying for three hours, but by spacing out that study, you will get massive improvements. <clears throat> Excuse me, you'll get massive improvements in your ability to remember that over the long term.
0: Yeah, that's the that's usually the second one that I so I, I tutor and, and coach students on on study skills and that's the one that students usually get in theory but have a hard mm-hmm. time applying in practice you're basically telling them like instead of cramming you need to do the responsible thing and and space out your practice plan
1: ahead time management right there're a lot yeah. of other <clears throat> excuse me there're a lot of other skills that are wrapped up in that in terms of your ability to plan and manage your time right and kind of know what you're going to do during those study sessions but that's always yeah. Don't don't cram. Is easier said than done.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we have number one retrieval practice. Number two space practice or space learning. Uh, what are uh, what's the third?
1: Um, interleaving is usually what I would go to next. So interleaving is when you kind of jumble it all up. So here you're let's say in one of your space practice sessions, you are practicing recalling different words. Um, You can combine all of these in different ways. Interleaving would be, you would be taking maybe similar items that you're studying, similar things, similar concepts, and mixing them up. So Mm -hmm. what you're doing by mixing them up is it's helping you to differentiate between the different concepts. So this is really only useful when you have concepts that need to be differentiated. Um, So for example, we might look at this in terms of math learning. And let's say you're learning how to do multiplication and division. so there are different steps you have to go through in each each one. Um, you will be better off, instead of, doing, instead of saying, okay, I'm going to sit down and do all of my multiplication problems and then I'm going to do all of my division problems. Interleaving would say, mix that up. And what we find is that generally what happens is that when people do that while they're doing the interleaving, it is a little bit more difficult because you're having to go, oh, wait, no, it's a little bit different here. What do I do here? And to switch back and forth between them. But in the long run, that makes you better able to use those skills when you need them. Because as my colleague, Megan, is fond of saying, life comes at you interleaved. Mm. Right? The, the, a lot of the times when you have to use these skills, it's like someone doesn't set you down and say, all right, you're going to do all your multiplication problems for the day, right? Like you're going to get right. them all done at once. Like usually it's you're, you're out in the real world and things are all mixed up and jumbled, and you have to go, oh, wait, there's that thing. What do I do here? And how is this different from something else?
0: Yeah. Yeah with interleaving, I always think of a almost like, a, if you're, let's say you're trying to build a house, you have you have a, a toolkit, right, or a tool, like a tool belt. And you don't use each tool, like, at once, you know, go from tool to tool to tool. And that's because uh, <laughs> well, one, that's not how you build a house, but two, you have to choose which tool like choosing which tool to use in for a certain task or, or in a certain context, that itself is is part of learning
1: right exactly like that's what interleaving is doing for you it's helping you to uh to discriminate right and to know um i would call it like to make a diagnostic right to say oh this is what i use this is the tool i use right now right for Mm -hmm. this task versus some other task Um, there's a really fun experiment they did with baseball players (laughs) um, Uh and having practice uh curveballs versus other right other pitches and right, the people who they're like, all right, we're gonna practice curveballs, and they just had curveball, curveball after curveball after curveball after curveball, got really good at hitting those curveballs, but they weren't so great when it came time for a game because in a game, right, in an actual baseball game, people don't stop and go, Okay, during this inning, we're only doing curveballs, right? Right, right. But the <laughs> whole point of this is that it's a different thing and you don't see it coming, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like it's a different pitch. Um, so the people who practiced hitting the pitches interleaved, right? To not, they they struggled during practice because it was harder, right? but they were much better during games because what they had learned was yes, the ability to hit it, but also the ability to recognize what was coming, right? Mm -hmm. To diagnose and say, oh, that is what this is. Um, and to be able to hit it there.
0: Yeah. Is it fair to say then that the, the average weekend golfer who goes to the driving range or, uh, I don't know maybe the, the casual tennis fan who just kind of hits i don't know d- does the same routine week to week they'd actually be better <laughs> better served by by switching up you know their their the numbers of their clubs or uh the uh the types of of strokes in tennis
1: yeah yeah exactly yeah. like i think there's something to be said for practicing a little bit so you kind of know what's going on like you do need to get some good feedback right where you could actually attain right what you're trying to do right where you can actually hit it but after that you should be mixing it up and interleaving it because yeah in a in an actual game scenario it's not going to be like all right this is the only iron we're using the entire yeah. time right you yeah. should be able to mix it up and do it different ways yeah
0: when you're all. in the yeah when you're in the sand trap it's not like wait a minute i only i only practice with the driver <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> i can't <laughs> I, yeah, I, don't right.
1: know, I don't know how to chip this right yeah
0: yeah yeah cool. So interleaving is the third. Uh, What's number four?
1: So dual coding, I mentioned before when we talked about learning styles because it comes up really naturally there. Dual coding is the finding that we tend to um, learn better when we mix modalities. So we typically are only, we're typically talking about visual and auditory. If you are reading words on a screen and listening to somebody talk, it is really difficult to do both things. Those are both verbal activities um and they will kind of like tie up your verbal system so the way that language works for us um Mm -hmm. when we are reading things we're typically reading it in like we're kind of like saying it in our own head um and you will tend to read things at the pace that you talk Mm -hmm. um so some we have different reading speeds and different cadences and what i will always tell my students is like you can only ever have one voice in your head at a time, hopefully, and hopefully it's yours unless it's Mm -hmm. me and I'm talking. So, um, when we have multiple sources of verbal information that can be really overwhelming, right? So if you have, again, words on the screen and you're listening to things and you're writing something down, you're also using the same sort of inner loop. Um, that's gonna be really hard to keep track of. However, if we have pictures or visuals without words, and we are combining Words on top of that. Now the two aren't really conflicting. Now we're getting the sort of the benefit of getting information over multiple modalities um, without any of the sort of um, competition. Mm. So um, the way I apply this in my teaching is I try to be very cognizant of how much information I'm putting up on the board. I've there are ways you can apply this to PowerPoints. I've just stopped using PowerPoints altogether because of mm. this um, because it's so hard to like. I'm a talker, right? So it's hard for me to not talk when I have words up on the screen. So I have to pace myself. And so the way I pace myself is by having to actually physically write it out. Um, So if we think about the way students are typically learning in a classroom, it's kind of a nightmare scenario for this sort of uh, overload situation where they have maybe words up on a screen that the instructor is talking over and they're trying to write it down. That's at Mm. least three different sources of verbal information happening at the same time. And that's a lot. And so they're having to switch their attention between those things and they're kind of losing stuff in the process. However, if you either pause, say, okay, you guys write that down, I'll give you a minute, give people time to write out, and then talk, that's one way to deal with it. It's all verbal information, but at least now it's not conflicting. Mm-hmm. Or if you um, do have something that you need to talk about, right, include a picture or a diagram. It's just a more benefit, like you're, you're going to get different um information that way and some of this does depend a lot on what you're teaching right um the way one of the ways i always think about this is in terms of um learning anatomy it's going to be really hard to do that without pictures like you really mm. do need like let's show me the skeleton like where are we at when we're talking about this but it's also really hard to learn that without some type of verbal description to give yeah. you some more context right um so again dual coding is just finding that when we combine verbals and visuals. Yeah, visuals and verbal um, we tend to learn better and retain more information than if we did either one alone or if we tried to like overload one
0: no that that makes a whole lot of sense I always um, I always think of for that one uh, I, I do e-learning design and and help help others with designing a, a lot of times it's, it's slides but uh, also times uh, like online learning modules and one big mistake I, I see a lot of people make is, they'll have the the talking head you know on screen and then they'll they'll have them say something and put the, put the words on the screen and then they'll also have a transcript for the for the uh, for the learner and they might even throw some visuals on there and they'll be they'll be audio recording so it's just it's just a lot and so i always advise no like if you're going to have a narrator try to keep to like just pictures mm-hmm. on the screen with narration or if there's no narrator put put the the text very close to the picture, like on the on the screen.
1: And I um, this last semester, I taught uh, a senior seminar for my behavioral neuroscience students, and um, they had to give a presentation. And we spent a few weeks going through um, their presentations, and I would have them go up and I would stop them on each slide I'm like, "Okay, you just put a bunch of text up on the slide, which means I'm not listening to you because Mm. I'm thinking, oh, this is really important. I need to read whatever she just put there but right. you're talking about something else. So I talk about like, if you're going to in, it's unavoidable, you need to have text on slide, it could be really useful, step through it, right? And so there's there are a lot of presentation, I would say like a good half of my advice on presentations was just like, let's think about dual coding and how much,
0: mm.
1: how you are directing people's attention and your job as the person designing this, right, is to direct people's attention in the way you want it to be directed. Um, and so being mindful of like, yeah, not overloading them with too much verbal information, but also knowing like, Hey, a visual will be really useful here because there's just, there's a lot of words going on and visuals are also really concrete. Um, and that's really helpful too, right. To have things that are not super abstract. Yeah. Um, so having like concrete examples and a lot of times that's what visuals is giving you.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So that's actually, you just moved into a fifth of concrete examples, right? Mm-hmm. so why why are concrete examples helpful
1: um in general we tend to remember concrete things better than abstract things um so we've studied this in memory um by looking at like a lot of memory research is just based on like we're giving you a list of words and we're seeing how much you remember
0: mm-hmm. when the
1: words and we can rate these words in terms of how abstract or concrete they are so a word like chair that's a very concrete um you and I are Probably both sitting in chairs right now probably people listening to this are sitting in a chair of some kind right and so that is a real world thing that you can point to and if i say chair you can picture that in your head Mm -hmm. as opposed to a word like justice very real Mm -hmm. but very abstract right what does justice mean to you like okay now we're into like this is a very long essay
0: um, right. it, yeah. You, where's, it, where's a uh, justice in the world? Like, can you, <laughs> can you locate right. it? Right. Point, yeah. point
1: to justice in the room and you're like, yeah. oof. um, so that's much more abstract in general, we tend to remember concrete things, things that we could visualize much better than abstract concepts. Um, so generally when you're giving examples, it's better to use concrete real world examples, um, than just to sort of use abstract concepts. Um, related to this, um, it's typically better to give multiple examples. Mm -hmm. um, Because uh, when people are learning a topic, it's difficult for them to kind of piece out what is like, what is the real important thing that I need to know here. Um, The way I would describe that is like the deep structure, what is the underlying principle or theme or thing that I actually need to know, versus if I'm giving an example, what's just kind of happens to be this example. So for example um, when we're talking about supply and demand right this is a thing that people learn about in school mm-hmm. you might give the example of like ticket scalpers right uh, people who buy tickets in advance when there's not much demand and they can buy them for cheap and then you can sell them at the event once it becomes like a big event and people there's more demand for this but a lower supply so now it's more expensive so that's a nice concrete real example that maybe people have some experience with but unless you give a second example of supply and demand, people might just think, well, supply and demand, that's just that thing that happens with tickets, as opposed to like, um, I'm trying to, oh gosh, I feel like we've had a lot of supply chain like issues. A, I, uh, that... Like at the, at
0: the grocery store. Like why yes. yeah, Why are there? Why are the eggs, there's not- Why are eggs as expensive? As many... Right, exactly.
1: Remember when toilet paper got really expensive there for a little while, right? Like some of it is supply, but supply chain affects the supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, So by giving multiple concrete examples, right, one that's a real world thing that people can picture in their mind, also that they has some meaning to them and they can relate to, and two, by giving multiple examples, it becomes much clearer for people what actually is the important part of this, right? Instead of to confuse it, instead of confusing it with just like the surface structure or surface details, like, uh, right? Because this has happened to me so many times when I'm teaching. Right? It's so hard to do this because you come up with one great example, you think it's fantastic. You think everyone's on the same page, and then you go to test people, and all they remember is the exact wrong thing that had nothing, some yeah. incidental detail that you're like that has nothing to do with this, but uh, they they lack that's the thing that they latched onto, and they thought it was important, and it's you know, miscommunication.
0: Yeah. So the more concrete and the the more examples that you can give that illustrate the concept, the the better.
1: Yes. yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of. I, for that one, I always think of. Let's say you're a baby trying to learn. What a dog looks like if you if it you know if a baby just sees a poodle they're not gonna identify the pit bull they see next time as a as a dog <laughs> right you like there's so like the you need multiple examples to be be able to figure out oh yeah. that's that's a dog too even though it looks very very different than this <laughs> than the first dog that I saw.
1: And the really the really cute thing that happens with little kids is they get overgeneralization. So you need multiple examples to, in some ways to limit them, right? Because mm. then they'll like, you go to the zoo and they point to the like, I don't know, the the panther and they're like, dog,
0: you dog, so right? Like, yeah, right? four four legs, kind of, uh, you know,
1: right? I <laughs> heard one of my one of my professors in undergrad told me a story about I think their kid who would like pointed at a vacuum It was like, dog, and you're like, well, <laughs> I guess I can see how you got there, but <laughs>
0: that's
1: not <laughs> not quite it.
0: But, yeah, that's funny. Okay, so we're, we're uh, what are we at five now? What, what's number six?
1: The last one is elaboration, um, hmm. and elaboration is just adding more, like say more, right? Elaborate on that, adding more details. Um, what that does is it helps you to make connections with other things that you know to provide more structure for your learning, um, and also to create meaning for something. That's another way that elaboration can help. Um, Elaboration is really effective, but to me it's sort of the most fickle one because it's just like, it's you elaborate. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, so to me, it always kind of feels like there's a few things going on there. Um, but what elaboration is doing, if you are kind of, uh, what the, the direction that we usually give students is to ask how and why questions, right? How does this relate to something else? Why does it work this way, right? Um, you need to elaborate in some sort of meaningful way to help you learn about this thing. Um, it, it will help you kind of create connections with other things that, you know, and that's something that's really powerful.
0: Yeah. Can you give a concrete example of a time when, uh, elaboration would be helpful for learning a concept?
1: Um, oh gosh, I'm always thinking about, we, we typically talk about, we, we give workshops sometimes and the example that we always use is like, um, explaining, learning about like lift and how that works in airplanes. Right. So in a physics mm-hmm. class, you might learn about lift. Um, and that we have like this picture of an airplane and you might as a student be asked to like elaborate on this. Right. So like, how does this and good questions to ask, cause you know, that you're learning about lift, um, would be like, how does the shape of the wing help? Right. Um, how does, you know, why, why, uh, is the plane, you know, shaped this way? Why do we do that? Right. Those kinds of things. Yeah. Unhelpful questions are like why is the number why you know is this number on the plane why is it red right like these are maybe things that you could talk about with the plane but are not related to the concept that you're learning about right right so asking how and why questions to help you elaborate but you do kind of have to have some kind of skill level to know like these are the relevant things that we're elaborating Mm. on um versus like i guess we're just talking about planes and then we've got a stream of consciousness going on which is maybe not as helpful
0: yeah. I can see how you can, for some of those how and why questions. Also, if if a student studying, let's say, tying them into some of the other strategies like retrieval practice or or space learning too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And all of these are, are things that could be combined, right? And you can use to greater or lesser extent, kind of depending on what it is that you're learning, right? That there's some of this, like the materials kind of dictate what you should be doing like hmm. we right, talked about for um dual coding uh that comes up all the time when i'm talking about like biology concepts things where like it would be really if if we're learning about the krebs cycle i i do need a diagram to help me walk through that thing right um, but then other times right if we're maybe in a um i can see like an english class and you're reading a passage i i don't know if we necessary. i mean you could right? Obviously create visuals to go along with it, but that's not quite, it's not quite the same thing. It's not going to rely so heavily on pictures and diagrams to get the meaning across because the whole point of this is that it's a verbal medium.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was super helpful. So just to, just to review for people. So one is maybe we can go, can go back and forth. One is retrieval practice. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, two is space practice.
0: Three is interleaving.
1: Um, four, we did dual coding,
0: dual coding five was concrete examples.
1: And six was elaboration.
0: Great. We just did some, we just did some back and forth retrieval, retrieval practice for people. Yeah. So if I'm, let's say I'm a, I'm a student, a K to 12, student, a college student, or just someone who's trying to learn something for, for enjoyment. Um, what, what, what's maybe one actionable thing that i could do next time i'm i'm studying
1: um well retrieval practice is my go-to but probably realistically um this time management and actually spacing out your studying right actually scheduling time setting aside the time Mm. to study i think is probably the first biggest hurdle for people right um that you actually have to sit down plan it out and say from you know this time or this time is when I'm doing the thing and actually have things ready to go, so that you can sit down and study and do what you need to do.
0: Yeah, psychologists talk about implementation intentions a yes. lot. I know, <laughs> and that's just basically wh- what are you going to do? When and where are you going to do it? Make like make the decision on that and uh, make, set the intention, and then put it on your calendar and then implement. <laughs> just like if it's on if it's not on the calendar, it's probably not going to happen.
1: Right, right. That like it. You, you realistically, you have to just you, you gotta do it. You gotta sit down and 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 study at some point. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest thing. And then after that, practicing retrieval is gonna get you the most sort of bang for your buck.
0: What about teachers? What what are or or professors or anyone who's trying to um, enable learning? How do like what's what's one actionable thing that they could do uh, in, next time that that they're instructing?
1: Um, well, we did talk a lot about dual coding, so I think that is something that, that that's sort of low hanging fruit in terms of like you don't you don't have to change up your lesson plan, you don't have to talk about something new different, right? But just being sort of a little bit more aware of how you're presenting the information, right? And it's it's hard, but like taking that pause after you've given something for people to write down so they can write mm-hmm. it down, um, and realizing that that is active time because it does i i know that i always feel when i'm in front of an audience in front of a class um i feel like it's my job i am the teacher i should be teaching and so it feels really weird and hard for me to pause and let them write things down because it feels like i'm not doing something active Mm -hmm. um so learning to be comfortable with that with taking pauses was for me a big challenge um but once i started doing that it really i think for me made a big difference in my teaching um and how i approached it when i started looking really closely at how i was presenting information and thinking about it from the standpoint of like all right if i'm a student sitting there and i'm trying and i'm trying my best right to write Mm -hmm. notes to listen to do all of these things once i sort of realized how that was affecting attention um i i just started cutting a I just started cutting a bunch of information. Not everyone yeah. has that freedom, right? To do that because there are certainly K through 12 teachers have a lot more, um, they're just requirements of things that they have to go over. For me as a college professor, I was able to say like, um, I, what's the point of teaching this if you're not going to remember it. So I'm only going to look at the most important things to me that mm-hmm. I want you to come away with and anything else is bonus. But like I was really clear when I designed my class, what I wanted it. So I could really pair things back to make sure that my delivery was as clean and as sort of, uh, purposeful as possible in terms of what I was throwing at them in any given class.
0: Yeah. I had a professor once who said <laughs> he had this little phrase that he always used was, uh, no attention, no retention. <laughs> that yeah, if, you, exactly. if you don't, if you don't manage the attention, there's no, there's no way that their uh, students or 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 even even you as a self-study are going to remember
1: right and And that's i i think is another piece of advice for someone who's trying to learn on their own is to know know yourself and know your distractions and limit them um and to sort of yeah understand how we if you have your phone up right you're going to look at your phone right and so it really is difficult to set aside time focus time where you're saying i'm not looking at email i'm not looking at my social media or my phone or whatever it is, and I actually am just doing the task, um, mm. can be really challenging at first and a little overwhelming. I always assure my students that it does get easier at the more you practice <laughs> using that sort of focused attention and that kind of mindset, the better you get at it. Um, so I usually tell them like, set a timer, mm. five minutes, right? And see how you're doing. And then maybe you can go for longer um, and on the yeah, flip it- side of that know that you aren't meant to sit down and have completely focused attention for like hours on end. Like you do need to get up and go for a walk. You do
0: need, right. You do need breaks. You do need little, you know? uh, Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. It's uh, I was just treated as a game. Just let's see if, let's see if I can pay attention. Let's see if I can focus on this for five minutes and then up it over time. Let's see if I can focus for 10 minutes. And it's, it's almost by setting that intention, you yeah, it's, it's a game. It's, can I uh, become a better, the more effective learner or, or doer, whatever I'm trying to do?
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Was I, um, was I correct in seeing that you, did you have a paper on, uh, on, uh, distractions? Was it Mm -hmm. cell phones? Can can you share a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. Um, so a few, uh, Gosh, a, a while back, now there was a paper that came out that was looking at um, how cell phones pull attention. Um, and the original paper uh, found that, like, just having just the the mere, it was called like the mere presence of cell phones, just the presence of a cell phone can be distracting because, like, people—it's a thing that goes off and gets our attention and it's distracting us. Um, mm. And my co-author, Dr. Adam Brown, and I thought, like is that for all phones, right? Like, there's a difference between my phone being on the table and my friend's phone being on the table, right? Mm. I am gonna be more sort of reactive to my own phone. Um, And so we designed a a, a factorial experiment as cognitive psychologists love to do. So we had, um, we wanted to see if there was difference between phone ownership, so my phone versus your phone, and notifications, um, a phone going off, right with a sound versus no sound Mm. right so notifications on notifications off and so that was at least a four by or it's a two by two so it's at least four different conditions Mm -hmm. my phone without notifications my phone with notifications your phone without notifications and your phone with notifications right and would having these phones out distract people differently or affect their ability to complete a memory task and i we did a couple different experiments so i forget which one I think it was probably a word list, but it may have been reading a passage and then having a problem. But a pretty basic memory experiment. You are learning some, you're reading some information and then later you're going to be tested on it. And the only difference here is um, whether or not my phone or the, in this case, the experimenter's phone is out, whether or not it's receiving notifications. Oh, and there was a fifth group, no phone. Mm. Um, And we were expecting there to be more of uh, an effect of ownership, right? Again, I know I, I'm used to the little noise that my phone makes, and I'm maybe not as um, you know reactive to somebody else's phone going off. That's not what we found. We found that ownership didn't really matter. Um, yeah. It doesn't matter whose phone is out. What matters is if it's going off. Um, people seem to be pretty able to ignore a phone that was out in silent and not doing anything. Um, that didn't really seem to affect them too much. Uh, but what, what did matter was notifications is if there's a phone going off, like we, our attention's pretty well, we're trained to pay attention to these things. And so if it's going off, we get distracted kind of regardless of whose it is.
0: Yeah. That's, that's so fascinating. I, when I, when I go out to dinner, I always try to just leave my phone in my pocket with notifications off because I, I just know if they're on, I'm not going to be able to be fully present with, with whoever I'm with, um. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, a, a fun fact you should know is your food will taste better if you're not. <laughs> um, oh,
0: re- really? Yeah, I wonder how, yeah. how does, this, how this, does...
1: this is the trick. This is how they get you on wine tours. Um, mm. You go on a wine tour, and the whole point of the wine tour is to taste the wine, and you're there for the experience, right? Um, and I know I've had this happen to me where I've been like, this was amazing, right? And you're really, you're in the tasting, it's fun, you're kind of learning stuff. Um, and then you're like, I'll buy the bottle of wine, and you take it home. And it kind of like rarely lives up to that original experience of it. Part of it is because you're not paying attention to it. Usually, when we're at home and we're eating or drinking or whatever, like you've Mm. got the TV on, you're doing other stuff. The same thing at a restaurant. If you go to a restaurant, typically, the whole like this is the event, this is the activity. So you are giving it your full attention and you are tending to your food in a way that you do not usually when you're at home and you're on your phone, you're watching TV or whatever. it's, it doesn't taste as good because you're not paying attention to it. So the more you're yeah. present and in the moment and paying attention to that experience, the better the food will taste because you're yeah. actually able to taste it instead of just being distracted by something else.
0: We enjoy food every day, but we don't really focus on the sensations of our <laughs> on our taste buds. Uh, right. You know, usually we're doing something, watching TV, texting, uh, reading something. And yeah, this yeah is... it's a, it's a pleasant surprise when we get to do that.
1: Yeah. When you get to go like, it's why like a tasting is like, you're like, wow, like a a wine tasting or even like a food tasting, right? Like the whole point is to like, maybe you'll have someone kind of lead you through it. And it is in a way sort of like a mindfulness activity where they're telling you pay attention to the sensation. What is that? You know, what's the mouth feel like, you know, the the Mm -hmm. terms that you use to describe these things. And you are, you are experiencing it differently than if you had not been focusing on it.
0: Yeah. I want to move now to ask you some, some personal questions about, about your uh, your learning and performance, I guess, routine. So, can you tell me about a time when you, uh, as, as a professor or a researcher, when you were performing at your absolute best?
1: I, I feel like there was a time, maybe it was, was it last year, I, I delivered a workshop along with some of my fellow learning scientists. So, with uh, Dr. Megan Sumaraki and Cynthia Nebel, we gave a workshop for um, a bank. Uh, they wanted to know because they were doing a lot of training and they wanted to know what, what what should our people know about training. And what was interesting about this is we gave two workshops. We had a morning session and an afternoon session. And we had never given a workshop or you know taught this type of audience before. We weren't quite sure what to expect. And to be honest, that morning session did not go super great.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: we There were things that we thought would connect that didn't quite, right? There was just the way the rooms laid out, the way we kind of talked about this or led up to it um it wasn't terrible but it wasn't great and so there was like a lunch break and we all met and we talked about it and we made some changes and that afternoon session went incredibly well it was Mm. fantastic um and we were really lucky that the organizers were there at both and they were super impressed by that and kind of came up to us afterwards and were commented they're like wow you guys you did like like, it was fine in the morning that was great but like it was really amazing how much better it was in the afternoon that was really impressive um Mm and that was great because it was for us we were learning on the fly okay this is you know with this audience this is the stuff that we need to focus on this is where we lost them this needs more explanation maybe we should swap when we explain these types of things um and that was that was really fun because it was i was delivering right i was performing but also um it was a really wonderful collaboration right and we got to kind of meet and Workshop the workshop a little bit, yeah, yeah, right, and then re-deliver it, and to have that sort of like immediate feedback of like, oh, that time worked, that was the difference, that made it a lot better, it was was really gratifying.
0: Yeah, I like how you, I love how you guys took like a halftime break and just changed, changed the you workshop the workshop as you said. Um, that that is that's hard to do, especially if you don't think the you know the first half went went well. I always I always tell students whenever you think you you failed, think think of fail as. Uh, a first attempt in learning because you, it's, it's feedback, right? It's, mm-hmm. you You got an outcome you don't like, you figure out, okay, how can I improve on this? And then you implement the new strategy and, and see how it goes. So Absolutely. I think that's, uh, um, that's, that's terrific that you guys were able to do that. Um, based on all of your research in cognitive psychology and learning science, um, what, what have been some routines or, or habits that you've, into place uh as a professional to help facilitate your performance
1: um i I, actually the things that i focus on now most is um just recognizing that my brain is in my body and if i am not taking care of myself Mm. other things are not going to happen um so i place a much higher priority and i'm much less sort of i guess embarrassed or ashamed about doing that whereas before i kind of Look, when I was in my 20s, I could just like, whatever, we'll power through, we'll get through it. Yeah. And now that's just not going to happen. Um, So I am much more, I guess, honest with myself about like, you need to take a nap right now. Like, you're not mm-hmm. going to get anything done unless you are actually taking care of your health first. Um, So I am much more, I guess, mindful and aware of that, that like, I need to go for a walk, like it's time to, to leave. If I don't walk, like going for a walk, stretching, doing some exercises is going to help me perform better. So I should be doing that routinely and put in place like a higher priority on that. I also know that I um, tend to just be better focused in the morning. So mm-hmm. I try to schedule all of my heavy thinking activities. Most of my stuff is, I'm either teaching or I'm writing. I have to make the words happen (laughs) Um, and really be in the sort of like clear focused and alert mind state for that. Um, And if that's going to happen for me, that's going to happen typically in the early morning. So I try to have all of my writing time scheduled in the morning, and then I schedule to the extent that I'm able to meetings or more kind of social things where I can essentially rely on the social interaction to kind of... Uh, keep me awake and alerts. Um, mm. I do that in the afternoon. So to the extent that I'm able, I try to arrange my schedule so that I can perform best at the my high priority tasks, which for me is going to be writing or teaching. I do those things in the morning. Um, and the things where are still necessary and very important, but don't require the same level of like focus and clarity, mm. I schedule that for the afternoon.
0: Yeah, that's really smart. I I, I have tended to notice over the years that the people who perform at a really, really high level try to manage their energy a lot as opposed to managing time. Yes. You know, it's one thing to say, okay, between, you know, four and five, I'm going to, I'm going to do this uh, really, really hard task, but between four and five, I'm exhausted. <laughs> so there's no, you know, there's no chance it's going to, it's going to happen. Whereas if you say, all right, I know between four and five, I'm usually kind of in a lull. Let me let me respond to email or let me schedule a meeting then when maybe that meeting can give me some more energy. Uh, yeah, something like that.
1: Right, exactly. I tend to think, I think that's a really good way of looking at managing your energy instead of your time because while the two were related, um, like you need time for things to happen in, but the time is not causal. And I talk about this learning, like time doesn't cause learning. The activities and the things that you do over time cause learning Mm -hmm. but i know that i can get if i you know have one of those superhuman days i've slept eight hours i've had a good breakfast i've been exercising right these all the stars have aligned i know that i can get so much more done in a half hour of focused like work than Mm -hmm. i could in five hours of just like i'm so tired i can't especially when you're doing some sort of creative work like writing or talk, researching right like
0: yeah if you don't
1: have a clear focused mind for that you're just not going to get anything done and then it doesn't matter you give me 10 hours you give me 40 hours it's not going to happen
0: yeah. right it, yeah. it's
1: really about the the energy that i have at that moment
0: yeah i want to move into so uh, some rapid fire questions that sure. that i like to do at the end so if you didn't do what you do now what would you be doing
1: I, so before I applied to grad school, I was very freaked out and thought that I would never get in, um, which, you know, is somewhat common. <laughs> and one of the best, uh, piece of advice I got was from, uh, a, a, my, one of my mentors that she said, like, she was like, first of all, Althea, you're obviously gonna get in. But second of all, she made me write a list of 10 things that I would do if I didn't get into grad school, which was uh-huh. really useful because then I suddenly realized like, I am not just this one thing, right? Like it's, my whole identity is not wrapped up in this, I can do other things. So some things from that list, Mm -hmm. (laughs) she's like, it doesn't matter what they are, Um, included like writing novels, um, owning like a bookshop. Um, It's probably not surprising that all of my alternative career choices were all still very like, I like reading and I like books. Very
0: very nerdy, yeah, (laughs) as well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of nerdy (laughs) activities.
1: So I, I, yeah, I have difficulty imagining imagining that i wouldn't be doing something like something else the other oh i also didn't find out until i was already in my phd program that there are uh programs of research looking at dogs and cognition dog mission if you will and i missed the boat on that i should have i i I mean it's great that we're here talking about learning and students yeah yeah but like i should have been running a lab with labs like it's just (laughs)
0: The lab lab, I love the it. The lab lab, man. Yeah.
1: Dog cognition, that, that would have been another way to go. That would have been great.
0: Very cool. Um, my next question, if you had to get a, a tattoo uh, of like a short phrase or quote, what would it be?
1: I don't know. That one, I don't know what I would feel strongly enough to like, as a phrase or a quote, like images, sure. But like at a quotes kind of a lot. I was thinking about this and I was like, maybe, you know, in- uh, honor of my very nerdy self would probably do either. I would go with like a, um, William James quote, because he, I, William James, father of American psychology, was writing and doing stuff in like 1879 or whatever. Um, but what's interesting about all of his early work is like, you go back and if you reread it, like it all holds up, like his ideas about attention and consciousness all feel very modern um Mm. so he has a lot of really interesting and good quotes about like um to change your mind is to change your reality Mm. um talk i mean all the things we talked about with directing attention are all just like he has some version of those quotes and he has some of these like little pithy sayings so either that or probably just a quote from like a fantasy novel (laughs) because i do read a lot of that so probably if ron is a, a brandon sanderson quote um would would be the other the other way we'd go with that
0: nice nice yeah i'm, I'm a fan of william james too he was he was a uh, kind of before his time in a way just a lot he was very intuitive of, of some things that have stood the test of time
1: right it's it's crazy when i go back and read it it feels yeah it all feels really relevant
0: um what's something that you're currently excited about
1: i have two things i'm starting a new job next week um mm which uh, we talked a little bit about before, that I'm starting a job for the IU School of Medicine to be their Senior Director for Student Academic Success and Achievement, um, where I get to apply what I know as a cognitive psychologist to help uh, medical students study and learn better. And so that's really exciting because it's very new and different for me. Um, I've been a professor for the last 10 years, so this is going to be a very big change of pace, but that's really cool and exciting. Yeah, um, med,
0: uh, I was gonna say med students have to have to memorize quite a lot. So I imagine uh, yeah. the retrieval practice can, it can be a big help.
1: Right, it's it's really important for them to know these things and it's so yeah. much. Um, so that's, yeah, it, it's good. To, and I, of course, am not a medical doctor. So there's gonna be a lot of learning that'll get to you. And so I'm excited about that too, just entering into a different setting and getting to learn what the different challenges are and like how medical school is set up. Um, that all is really exciting, just getting to be in a different setting and learn what that world is like. Um, I'm also excited because The Learning Scientist has a book coming out. We have a book coming out in July, Ace That Test, A Student's Guide to Learning Better. Um, and that's, it's so exciting that it gets to be out in the world. The way publishing works is like, I did a lot of writing last summer.
0: <laughs> right, right, and yeah.
1: Now I get to tell everybody about it, which is really cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's called Ace That Test and it's for for students.
1: A student's guide to to learning better. Um, Yeah, so we wanted to write something that was really directed at students. we have seen a lot of books recently kind of directed at teachers and sort of Mm -hmm. applying the science of learning to teaching, which is fantastic. And we wanted to have something that spoke more directly to students, the sort of um, aiming at sort of um, maybe a high school or college level. Um, And we really wanted something that would be easy for someone to pick up and get some good takeaways. From um, so something short, very accessible. Um, in, in my mind, this is the the book that you know you find out that your like niece or nephew is going to college, and you're like, here's here's this to help. Here,
0: you yeah, learn. here's yeah here's ace that test. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Cool. We can put a um a, a link to it. Uh, is is it on Amazon? Currently, it is. Okay. Yes. Yeah, we can put a link to it on uh on uh, uh in the show notes for the episode. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So that's coming out in, in July. What, um, what other projects have you been working on?
1: I am also currently writing another book, um, <laughs> with another member of learning scientists with thanks to Meraki, um, writing that this summer. So hopefully by next year, again, that'll come out. So we're writing a book in the series of the psych, the psychology of everything is a series of books and we are writing memory. So the psychology of everything, memory. Um, and it's kind of similar to some of my other writing projects. This is meant to be again, a very short, um, quick overview for non-experts. Right. So for anybody who is just kind of curious about what is human memory, um, this would provide an overview of, of memory.
0: Nice. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that coming out. I'll have to check that out some more. Um, great. My, the last question, what's uh, What's something that you're currently worried about?
1: Um, man,
0: (laughs) you just, you just moved back to, so I'm sure there's a lot of things.
1: (laughs) I I mean, for me personally, um, all the things that I'm excited about are also things, right? Starting a new job, hopefully Mm. I'll be able to get this book done while I'm starting, um, a new job, getting, getting settled in, because I've just moved to a different state. Um, so I think those are, those are the top of my list currently.
0: Mm. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, before, before you go, can you just, just plug yourself where like, if people want to learn more, where can they go?
1: Um, yeah, you can go to, uh, the learning scientists, um uh, learning org, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. and that's where we have, uh, we have a blog we have a podcast. Um, I'm not so much active on social media at the moment in part because I'm like switching roles. Um, But should I become so, you would be able to find all of that at The Learning Scientist.
0: Great. Dr. Althea Kaminsky, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Wow. What a great episode I had such a blast with chatting with Dr. Kaminsky. We could have ch- chatted for <laughs> for hours more. I hope you took away from that as much as I did. Those six practices, especially a retrieval practice, have been immensely helpful to me, and I know many other people teachers, educators, students whether it be K through 12, college, adult learners, they're just so, so valuable. And and I don't think we apply them enough in, in education. So if you're interested in learning more, I'd highly recommend going over to thelearningscientist.org and checking some of them out. I especially liked Dr. Kaminsky's point in this interview about the optimal level of arousal. We don't wanna to be too understimulated or too overstimulated. We really wanna be in that sweet spot with whatever we do. I also liked your point about taking care of yourself. When we don't have the, the mental or the physical resources, we're not going to learn and perform at our best. So thank you for listening, and I'll be back next time with another exciting guest. Okay, learners, over to you. What's one thing that you took away from this episode? Take a moment and just make a mental note of one big idea, strategy, or tool. Give it a try and see what difference it makes. And then feel free to share your experience on the webpage for this episode. Remember. Improvement equals reflection plus action. What are you going to do now after listening to this episode? If you've enjoyed this episode, I've got three requests for you. First, if you'd like to receive future episodes, make sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. Subscribing also helps the podcast reach a wider audience and helps me to continue to produce high-quality content for the l community. I'd also be grateful if you could take a few minutes to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Views help the podcast reach a wider audience and attract more listeners and benefit from this content. Plus, your feedback helps me improve the show. So if you have a moment, leave a review and let me know what you think. Last but not least, if you really like the show, I'd appreciate it if you could share the podcast with friends or colleagues directly or via social media. When you do, make sure to share one thing you learned. Remember, when you teach something, it's like you're learning it again. That's all for today's episode of the Learning and Performance Podcast. I hope you found the things we discussed helpful and are thinking of ways you can apply them to enhance your learning and performance. Join us next time for another episode. And until then, keep on learning.